0: Hello and welcome to the 29th episode of How Not to Suck at the Stocks. This is your host, Dan Hanson. So I'm recording this on a balmy 48-degree day in February, which in Illinois is highly peculiar. To put in perspective, a week ago on Valentine's Day, it was 8 degrees. And so I went to wash my car And I went to, like, an actual car wash, but the computer interface really annoyed me. I'm like, these motherfuckers ain't getting my money. So I went in reverse, even though I had cars behind me. I went in reverse and drove, like, 20 minutes to a place I knew of that was a (laughs) self-serve a self-serve car wash. And so no other people were there. No one else had this problem. But I sprayed my car with water and it just immediately froze. I just, my car was just encased in ice immediately. And then I went to go put soap on it and the soap froze and, uh, well, well, pardon me, but um, the soap looked like, uh, have you ever seen cum in the shower? Well, my car was just boot cockied with the shit, and I couldn't say that because I was with my niece at the time. And the only way I got the soap off, I couldn't rinse it off. Instead, I just had to use the water pressure to kind of like flick the the ice off, like chip by chip. And then, so anyway, and then my date was just like, "Oh, I don't even care about car washes. I wouldn't even notice." And it's like, "Oh, gee, I'm really glad you're appreciating all the." The fact that like my shoes froze, my shoes my shoes were sopping wet. I almost got fucking frostbite. I had to stop at a Jewel. To, like t- I literally went to the break room and it's like took my socks and shoes off, warmed my feet up, tried you know so I wouldn't get frostbite. Anyway, ah, great story. So yesterday I read Bob Iger's The Ride of a Lifetime, and uh, as Bart Simpson would say, I found it. Highly self-serving, with many glaring omissions, which isn't to say it was bad. I actually highly recommend it. It's a quick read. It's like two forty pages, I want to say two fifty, maybe no, like two thirty. I think um, super quick, easy read. Let me break down what is in it with my analysis. So he starts off talking about how he picked himself from the ground up by his own bootstraps, and like he, it was actually endearing. He literally did. He was um, if there was a rung. In the corporate ladder of show business, he started off on the bottom. It was his job to show up at 4 in the morning and unlock the doors for the lighting crew that would come in and set up the lights for the the, the daytime TV operas, whatever they're called, soap operas. And so it talked about – that was at ABC, and it talked about him you know, going up and up and up, and then there was the Cap Cities acquisition, and finally Disney uh, bought ABC, and he was moved – uh to Disney and it talks about him being Michael Eisner's number two man. And when I joked about the many glaring omissions, um so Aswa Thamadorian, which is a name I cannot pronounce, he's an NYU Stern professor. Uh he, he posts his lectures online, so you can actually watch his classes. These are you know these are MBA-level finance classes, and you can watch them for free. He provides the study material on the on site for free. And in one of the lectures, he talks about Michael Eisner, and he talks about uh, a man named Katzenberg who—so let's back up. So Disney was going through dire straits. They couldn't really find their identity. They hadn't had a cartoon hit since I think like Fox and the Hound back in like, the 70s or something. So looking for new blood to run the company. And so they wanted Eisner from Universal, but he'd only come if he got his personal assistant, Katzenberg. And Katzenberg was like, eh, I don't want to go to Disney. And so Eisenberg was like, hey, well, you can be the head of your own department. And so he gave him animation, because back then, animation, like I said, was a shit show. Well, Katzenberg, if you remember the 90s, uh, Katzenberg was the head for, stop me if you've heard of these names, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin. Uh, The Lion King, so just hit after hit after hit, and the problem was in part of Katzenberg's contract, and again, none of this is talked about in Bob Iger's book, Um, in uh, part of Katzenberg's contract was he got a percent of the revenue. In Hollywood, you never want a percent of the profits. There are no profits. You want a percent of uh, the revenue. Uh, and so a percent of a really huge number is a really huge number. And so Eisenberg was like, well, I just don't want to pay him. And so they fired him and Katzenberg sued. And with that money, he, uh, founded DreamWorks, which I think is, you know, just kind of, kind of amazing how you can, it's like America. He just created his own, uh, next enemy. But in any case, uh, so that part totally omitted, like, Bob Iger talks about Eisenberg and, as if he was just this unsung hero, a casualty of a PR campaign from a crazy Roy Disney. So Roy Disney is Walt Disney's uh, nephew. And he started a Save Disney campaign to get Michael Eisner fired in the early 2000s. And like I said, Bob Iger is really careful not to criticize Eisner at all. Whereas this this professor I'm talking about, Aswalt Domedarian, is very loose with the insults, and it's interesting to hear both sides of the stories, but I will say... I do take, and I know I'm pronouncing his name wrong. I apologize. Uh, he's he's a he's a great mind. I highly recommend him. Uh, but Damodorian, I respect his opinion more because he has no axe to grind. He's a Disney shareholder. He has no reason to lie about this stuff. Whereas Bob Iger, you could see you know the politics of him being kind of closed-lipped as far as uh, criticizing his predecessor at Disney. So, in any case, so Bob or Michael Eisner is forced out. Um, and Bob Iger is chosen uh, to replace. And it is interesting, like his, you know, who uh, the process and the interviews. And so he's finally put in place. And once he's CEO, that's really when the book becomes interesting to me. Because as a shareholder of Disney, it's interesting to get kind of a a little bit of a backdoor peek in how these famous acquisitions came to be. Uh, so the first one is Pixar. And so uh, real quick history on Pixar. So Pixar was originally part of Lucasfilm, and then back in the early 80s, George Lucas went through a divorce, and he had to sell off some assets to pay his wife. So if you ever wondered why there's just a giant vagina monster at the beginning of Return of the Jedi, that's why. A little bit of a Freudian slip, that's why in the special edition he adds a beak to make it look less like a spiky vagina monster out in the desert. But that's what it was. Any case, so he spins off Pixar and Steve Jobs uh, buys it. And that's instantly when the autobiography becomes a million times better. Uh, If you've never read a biography with Steve Jobs, he's just like a hurricane. He's awesome. Um, I know he's Nerd Jesus. I know it's really popular to like him, but it's I'm sorry, it's impossible not to. Um, Another book I highly recommend is called, I forget the name of the author, but it was the CFO of Pixar. It's called To Pixar and Beyond, and that book is about this guy who Steve Jobs tries to lure in to become the CFO, and he talks about seeing the rough draft of Toy Story, and again, remember the glaring omissions part. Uh, There was a lot of friction, so Pixar and Disney worked together. Uh, in the 90s, to release films with Pixar making them and then Disney distributing them. And the deal was highly lucrative for Disney. But after hit after hit out of Pixar, Steve Jobs actually ended up having some leverage. And it it goes into way more uh, detail in the the Pixar and Beyond book um, about how Disney was trying to fuck over uh, Pixar so bad. And this book kind of glosses, like I said, kind of glosses it over. It's not like a tell-all biography. That's fine. Um, but anyway, I'm cutting this part short. But that, that was interesting. And so, you know, talking to Steve Jobs and is finally able to get the deal done to where both sides could agree. And uh, it was for uh, $7.4 billion, but Pixar, like, a billion in cash. It was really like 6.4. dollars um, And the reason why Bob Iger had that vision of buying Pixar is he realized he was at a parade at Disney and he saw all the, the characters coming out and he realized none of the Disney characters were from a film they had made in the last uh, 10 years. Cause after that Katzenberg guy got driven out, um, you know, it was just flop after flop after flop with a couple like decent runs, but nothing like the Lion King or anything. And he knew characters were the lifeblood of Disney. If you're not making new and excitable IP then you're not really giving kids reason to want to go to the park. So the animation is actually the lifeblood of the company. And it talks about how he had to convince the board of this and how that was a struggle, and Eisenberg was... Or not Eisenberg, uh, Michael Eisner. If I've been calling him Eisenberg, I apologize. Uh, Michael Eisner was was against the idea. Pardon me. Uh, So that was fascinating. Uh, Moving on, uh, next was the Marvel deal. And... He definitely got a lot of pushback from that, because as you know, uh, Marvel didn't even own the rights to a lot of the characters. So Sony had Spider-Man, and I believe uh, Fox had Fantastic Four and the X-Men, which these are all the high IPs if you don't follow comics. And then uh, I think Universal still had the Hulk at that point. Someone still had Dare- or, uh, Deadpool, not Deadpool, um, Daredevil, pardon me got Deadpool and Daredevil confused. It's almost like, well, they're not really the same. They just kind of look the same. But in any case. Um, and well, I mean, let me back up a second. So in trying to sell the idea to Steve Jobs that he wanted to take over Pixar, Steve Jobs was, was extremely concerned that Disney was going to change Pixar and was become part of this bloated machine. And was, they'd lose their creativity in this giant corporate bureaucracy. And... Bob Iger was like, "No." He kept saying, "Why would we buy your company in order to change it? Like, if we find value in it, why would we try to change it? Like, when we, I'm not wording as well as he is. That's why he's a CEO, and I'm drinking whiskey, talking to a microphone. Uh, but in any case, uh, and not only did he not want to change Pixar, he wanted Pixar to change Disney. So he wanted John Lasseter, who we'll get to later, whose name I'm also probably mispronouncing, and then another gentleman whose name I I forget. He wanted them to come in and direct." Disney Animation, which was the dream of a lifetime for John Lasseter, and let me actually talk about him right now. So this is interesting again; it kind of ties into everything I've been talking about. Is so in the eighties he worked. Let me back up even further, and this was from something I saw on TV a long time ago. It not in the book, but as a kid, John wanted always wanted to work at Disney. Okay, he wanted to be an animator for Disney. And so he finally, you know, he got his dream job, animated for G- Disney. Everything was going great. Then in the late 80s, he showed some executives a demo he'd been working on of using a computer to do animation, which back in the 80s was relatively unheard of. And he got fired for it. He was told Disney is never going to do computer animation. So he gets fired, and he's actually picked up by uh, Pixar. So that's how he comes back into the company so it's it's funny like a decade earlier he's fired and then a decade later not only is he brought back he's one of the big reasons they wanted pixar he's a huge creative mind behind pixar i think he direct, did he direct toy story in any case my sure. they want him to head the animation so it's just a great big character arc for him unfortunately it turned out he was some sort of Sexual deviant, so he ended up getting fired. They gloss over it in the book and just say he liked to hug people too much. I am sure there is probably more of like a casting couch type situation, but and they don't really discuss discuss that. This is a very remember this book, Ride right of a lifetime, is a very rated G Disney PR marketing campaign type book. It's not it's not the dirt by Molly Crew, which is another book I actually highly recommend. Um, but in any case, oh yeah, the 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 dirt. I mean. It's worth. There's this one chapter about Vince Neal's daughter, um, who gets uh, who gets cancer, and like the book is worth it just for that chapter. I I haven't cried that hard from a book, and I don't mean to bring you down, but um, yeah, the book is like a fun light read, but like that chapter, oh my god, it's just like sadness porn. Let me tell you. But any case, uh, moving on. John Lasseter is a pervert. Where were we? Oh, yeah. So that's why they want to Pixar. And then with Marvel, it was kind of like the same thing. Like, these people are geniuses. Um, You know, Kevin Feige, I don't think they knew he was a genius yet. They may have. I think Kevin Feige did sit down with Bob Iger and explain the MCU to him, how he had this idea of episodic... Uh, films with the characters uh, in multiple and, you know, uh, anthology films where they all get together and then standalones and origins and sequels and uh, not really reboots, but in any case. Uh, So he wanted to keep that the same. And so up until that point, uh, Bob Iger was following almost like this Berkshire Hathaway style of acquisitions which I call, or he calls rather, not me. Uh, I didn't coin the term, he did. Uh, bolt-on acquisitions. These are companies that you can just buy and bolt on and they immediately start adding your bottom line. There's no like, oh, synergies and cutting out middle management. No, it's just like you you, you buy them and you don't change them. Okay. Uh, and Marvel, I think, was for $4 billion. And so then his next target was Lucasfilm. And that was the chapter I was really looking forward to. Because if you haven't seen it, George Lucas did an interview on Charlie Rose back in like maybe 2016, where he really rips Bob Iger and Disney a new asshole. Uh, so basically, Bob Iger approaches George Lucas and is like, hey, I want to buy a Lucasfilm. I want to, you know, pick up the torch of Star Wars and everything. And George Lucas was looking for a home for it. Um he has such a bad experience doing the prequels with the internet just being completely insane. Like the prequels are fine. Like I understand they're not as good as the originals, but they're fine. Like especially the third one, like that's a good movie. I, I don't really defend episodes 1 and 2, but Revenge of the Sith, like that's that's a that's an awesome movie. But the internet is just so extreme. And, you know, to get attention, you have to have the most rabid, depraved, uh, incel opinion. And that just rises and boils to the top. And I, George Lucas, I think, was personally extremely hurt by his fan base turning on him uh, like they did. So he was ready to sell it so someone else could pick up the torch. And um, he wanted to make sure that it was in good hands. And he wanted to stay in control, but Disney wouldn't do that. And George Lucas was a little confused because, you know, he had talked to Steve Jobs. and Steve Jobs talked about how when Disney bought Pixar, they left it the same. Management was kept in place. And when they bought Marvel uh, from Ike, management was kept in place. Now when they bought Lucasfilm, they wanted to get rid of George Lucas. So that, that's really the only manager. There's no, like, directors. Um, And also, it was interesting uh, as a as a tangent. They they get into valuation a little bit on these acquisitions. Um, So with Star Wars, it was like, okay, so we can make about one movie every couple years, starting two thousand fifteen. They'll make about a billion dollars each. Merchandise will bring in X, Y, and Z, and you know they didn't really know if they could actually like go to the Lucas Ranch and or Skywalker Ranch rather and look at the numbers, and then. Um, you know, for parks, they gave a zero because they'd already had uh, Star Tours and everything. So there was a little bit on valuation of Pixar, and uh, Pixar was a little bit easier to value because you had films in the pipeline, and there was other Pixar films that you could easily point to as a reference point. Whereas with Star Wars, uh, it's a little bit—it was a little bit tougher to, to value. Anyway, so th- that stuff was interesting. I'm glossing it over it here, of course. Um, so anyway, so Lucas was hurt. Because, one, he didn't have movies in development. He did write treatments for 7, 8, and 9. And Bob Iger bought them with the understanding that there was no obligation to use them. Okay, and the, the last thing I said was crucial. So George Lucas wrote treatments. So if you don't know what a treatment is, it's like a 40-page version of a script. And a script is usually about 120 pages. It's about a page a minute of film. So it's, it's something that a screenwriter can easily flesh out to make a, to make a script. And um, he put Kathleen Kennedy in place, who was the producer of, like, name a Spielberg film, and, you know, uh, Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones. She's produced it. You know, Back to the Future. She's produced it. Um, I might be wrong about any of those. But I know she's produced a lot of Spielberg's uh, films. So Lucas put her in place, like, six months before he sold it because he wanted to have, even though he was going to be gone in any sort of official capacity, he's going to be called a consultant. I'm using air quotes, but he knew he could be booted at any time. So he wanted Kathleen Kennedy there uh, as an insider to stay true to his vision. Well, as soon as it was, as soon as George Lucas sold, you know, his children to the white slavers, like he said in that Charlie Rose interview, which by the way, Taken out of context. He should never have to apologize. You know, fuck the PC, please, Jesus Christ. In any case, um, as soon as the ink was dry and his tears were dry and his fat, you know, no chin face, no jawline face, uh, they just took his treatments and threw them right in the fucking trash and said, we're just going to do our own thing. And if you've seen the movies, um, you know what they were. Um, This isn't meant to be my Star Wars episode, so I'm going to hold myself back as much as I can, but needless to say, they didn't follow Lucas's vision. They went on their own path, and um, I'm not going to say it was a disaster... But it was a disaster. And it, it wasn't really a disaster to the last one. It, like, I kind of had held out, like, an inkling of hope and the last one came out. And I was just like, wow, they really had no fucking idea what they were doing. Because instead of having an overall story arc for the, tri- for the trilogy, it was just more of, like, a baton. Like, I'll do the first one. Then you do the second. Then you do the third with really no planning or um, uh, choreography at all. So, in any case... Uh, I've spent way too long talking about Star Wars. So, okay, it, it touches upon that. And, and to his credit, I've been, I've been joking about how Bob Iger, with his many glaring omissions, he does pretty much lay out the facts that he fucked over George Lucas and took his ideas and disregarded them completely and took Star Wars in a direction that really no one wanted, but Bob Iger, Bob Iger thought he had the finger on the pulse of the consumer And he very clearly didn't. So it's an interesting compare and contrast of the first two acquisitions, which are very Buffett-like, and the third one, which is very uh, un-Buffett-like. And I think it's perhaps no coincidence that the third one hasn't worked out as well as the first two. Um, And then finally, the last acquisition of note was the Fox deal. And the Fox deal... I'm already over 21. uh, The Fox deal... Has all the signs of the senile emperor, the senile emperor CEO. So when you look at the these first three deals, so uh Pixar for 7.4, uh, Marvel for 4 billion, Lucas uh, Lucasfilm for 4 billion, these are great deals. Okay. You can't, especially in hindsight, you cannot deny these are great deals. Then you get to the Fox deal. And it's hard to put a price tag on it because um, there's so many moving parts. For example, uh, the, the the regional sports networks they bought, they were, they were able to resell them, and then their stake, like the 39% stake in Sky, uh, they sold, and a lot of the debt that um, they were going to have to take on to acquire the rest of Sky, they didn't they didn't have to take on. So the official number you see online is not is actually much higher than what the actual number ended up being. Uh, thankfully, and. My issue as a shareholder was we weren't really given enough information on the acquisition to really judge it. That's the point of financial statements. That's the point of a 10K or a 10Q, is to give you, the investor, enough information to approximate the value of a company without divulging too many trade secrets. Uh, with the the Fox merger, they really didn't. It was. It was I'm not going to say it was a black box, because that's a little extreme. Um, and I'm not going to say... I don't have any personal responsibility for being a better analyst who could have derived the value. But I remember going through piece by piece and trying to value all the parts. And it was it was too complicated. If it was something I was going to buy, I just wouldn't. I'd put in the too hard pile. But as an investor already of Disney, I was kind of gunned to my head, had to. Um, this book really offered zero insight into that at all. Uh, the other acquisitions he gave a little more of his rationale on why it'd be a good fit this acquisition he just made it sound like i need it to do disney plus and i've always thought that was more of a almost like george bush with iraq you know where he used the war on terror as um not an alibi what is it called the word is escaping me. But as I'll well, say as an excuse to go to Iraq, which really had nothing to do with the war on terror. Um, that's what it sounded like here. Like the Disney Plus thing. So, of course, people cutting the cord and cable dying was, of course, a very real prominent threat that Wall Street was afraid of. And Disney had every right to, um, to work through. And so Disney Plus makes a lot of sense. But the Fox deal really seems like something separate. That's just being conflated with uh, the cable cutting. It it really just seems more like what you'd expect to see in a dying industry, just needless um, mergers, just needless consolidation. Um, And, you know, they gave away – my big problem was they gave away so so many shares of Disney for so many shares of Fox. And it's like, why would you give away a scrap of Disney World? Why would you give away a scrap of Mickey Mouse – and Star Wars, and Marvel. For what? For what? The fucking Simpsons? Like for Avatar? For the Alien franchise? And I get it. Okay, they got a lot like the X-Men back and all this stuff. If Marvel has proved anything, it's they don't need the high value IP to knock out hits. Black Panther, who the fuck ever heard of the Black Catwoman before they made it a hit? or Captain Marvel, or Gardens of the fucking Galaxy. It's about a raccoon and a tree. You don't need to pay for Wolverine. You already get these monster hits with just tertiary and whatever is after tertiary characters. So anyway, um, I wasn't a huge fan, but then I realized, you know what, they're going to buy back so many of their shares to cancel the dilution. Interest rates are so low that the debt they bring on to buy back their shares... The, Based of the low interest rates, when interest rates are this low, it really kind of saves management when they make really stupid decisions, which they did. That's the most value-destroying thing a CEO can do is just a huge boneheaded acquisition like buying Fox. Um, there's no quicker way to destroy value for a company than to just waste it on underperforming uh, dead, needless assets like Hulu, who the fuck needs Hulu? If, if I owned Hulu today, I would pay you to take it. And if that sounds crazy, realize Hulu does lose billions of dollars a year. It's not worth owning. Um, you could make your own thing, call it whatever you want, and it'd be worth more than Hulu. Because Hulu already has a decade of being known as complete shit that, like, I don't know, your parents have, maybe? Anyway. Anyway. This has gotten ranty. <laughs> Pardon me. Uh we're super over on time. Uh and by, by we I mean me. It was it was mostly me. You're very little to blame for how long I've been talking. Uh other than of course thank you. Um that's that, that's really the long and the short of the book, like I said, the first half is his rise to CEO, which isn't as interesting. And then once he's CEO, it, it gives you a little glimpse behind a lot of the major acquisitions for Disney. So if you're a Disney shareholder or just a fan of the company, um, highly recommend it. Um, he tries to give life lessons, which I find laughable. Um, it's like, okay, how about the life lesson that when you're supposed to leave, the company, as CEO, if you've been there forever, don't make some huge acquisition so you get to stay, you know, then maybe, maybe don't be a dick. Because what happens is when the CEO refuses to leave, then all the up-and-coming talent beneath him realizes they're never going to get their shot at the gold ring, so they leave the company, and it just it causes uh, an exodus of talent when the top guy refuses to leave um he also reminds me of jerry angelo where jerry so this is football reference chicago bears uh so he drafts Devin hester in the 2006 draft you don't know who Devin hester was he's a he was an athlete without a position they put him as a punt returner he became the most prolific punt returner of all time and it was a great end up being a great draft pick in the second round and after that, that's how you get like the Garrett Wolfs of the world, who was like a five-two hundred and nothing pound running back, that never did anything. And so basically, Jerry Angelo, after that Devin Hester draft pick, just thought his shit couldn't stink. And he forgot that, no, Devin Hester was a good pick because Devin Hester was a good pick, not because your name is Jerry Angelo. I feel like that happened with Bob Iger. After knocking out of the park with Pixar and Marvel and Lucasfilm, he got in his head... I don't know, just too much smoke being blown up your ass after, you know, 16 years of being CEO of the same company. That's that's how I think you get the Fox thing. Plus, he started talking about being president. It's like, that's how you know your CEO is fucking crazy. When he starts talking about being president, it's like, Donald Trump, I realize he's a businessman that became president, but he was on TV for fuck all ever. He was not Home Alone, for Christ's sake. And he was a household name before then. So it's not like he was like just the CEO that became president. He was a celebrity for decades before and a marketing genius for decades. Well, you can hate the guy you want. Marketing genius for decades. Before he tr- turned his attention on you know the grandest marketing campaign of all—the marketing campaign for president. Anyway, huge tangent. Uh, probably take you less time to read the damn book. Go out, get it from your local library. Buy it off Amazon. Do whatever you got to do to get it. Great book, ride of a lifetime by Bob Iger. This has been Dan Hansen with How Not to Suck at the Stocks. This is my longest episode. Of all time, congratulations for sitting through it. You are the real hero. Good night.